0: FOREVER! DOG!
1: Hey y'all, my name's Alex Berg, and welcome to the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the world's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary. And every week we focus on major topics affecting the queer community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. As many of us have been observing Easter and Passover these past few days, the push for anti-trans legislation continued. While I was seeing people celebrating and posting messages of renewal and gratitude, anti-trans bills were moving through Florida and West Virginia, not to mention Arkansas, where the governor's veto of a bill that would ban gender-affirming care for trans youth was overridden by the legislature. The timing of the holidays, people talking about Judeo-Christian values, While these bills continue to make headlines, made me think about how they've become the latest culture war, and, more specifically, the religious right's new obsession. So this episode, we'll be talking all about how we've seen religion used to forward these bills and other anti-LGBTQ measures, like pushback against the Equality Act, and why it's so frustrating for LGBTQ people of faith to see the right co-op religion as their thing. I mean, what is going on with the religious right in 2021? I'm really excited to talk about this topic. So you know what? Let's get right into it. Joining me now to dive into this conversation is Reverend Candy Holmes, a spiritual social activist and clergy with the Metropolitan Community Churches, Jorge Olivares, the host of the podcast Queer I Am Lord, and John Gallagher, a political correspondent for LGBTQ Nation. Welcome, everyone. Hi,
2: Alex. Thank you. Thanks for having
1: us. I am both excited and a little terrified to talk about this topic. I think (laughs) I'm kind of bracing myself, but happy post-Easter and Passover to all of our listeners. Um, You know, I've just been thinking a lot about how we've arrived at this moment where in past decades, the religious right focused on quote, unquote, homosexuality and sodomy laws, then fought against abortion and same-sex marriage, and now has turned its focus to anti-trans laws and an obsession with trans people
3: that would be spot on Alice. that would be spot on that's exactly what's happening
1: and i would
0: say that it's not so much that they've turned away from the other topics they're still really active on those as well it's just of a piece of their concern about gender roles and um, traditional family structures so it's really sort of expanding where they've been all along
2: it feels kind of like we're going back to the pre-Trump years with regards to the religious rights emphasis or fascination with sexuality. Like there was some part of it during the Trump years with the religious freedom bills, but I feel like now it's like, okay, now that they've decided to let go of this all leader that they were totally all about with Trump, now let's go back to the boogeyman, which the boogeyman has always been queer people. And the boogeyman has always been just somebody who's trying to live authentically, but it goes against whatever they feel to be the, what's tried and true with Christian Judeo beliefs.
3: And I would also add to that, what happens a lot of times is that the larger, I guess, the larger church or the religious right feel that the same-sex marriage and acceptance of LGBT folks has gotten a lot of attention from the public. And the pendulum seems to be swinging in our direction. And so, you know, they haven't given up, I agree with John, they haven't given up on on that, on pushing back. But it's a hard push with so much acceptance now in society, or let's just see more acceptance. The trans issues are newer to the scene, even though they've been pushing against it. It's newer, there's still more that can be pushed against. You know, it's still, there's so many unknowns in terms of the larger society. So there's more there to make people afraid.
1: Yeah, I feel like that word fear, uh, I, I was just thinking about that. Like when you think about the religious rights, the some of these topics that they, uh, you know, I, I guess had more energy behind in the past, or, you know, I guess now they uh, have their energy behind many things. It is really this idea of creating this like boogeyman or this fearful, unknown quantity, and then like pushing that. And now, I feel like they're able to capitalize more on people's ignorance in general around trans issues. But it's so interesting to me to see how they've taken these tactics that they used to use and then now have totally organized around trans issues. Like, for example, John, I knew I know that you've written about how the religious right has specifically used the same tactics it uses with anti-abortion efforts, um, which I found to be so fascinating because it's like both of these things have to do with autonomy, right? And people making choices of what to do with their own bodies. And so I see why they would be able to take some of those tactics and just move them over to the fight against trans rights. Um, but John, I was curious more about that. Like, what are some of the Those tactics that we've seen? um, And, you know, how are they able to just energize around this?
0: Well, I I agree with you that a lot of what they're uh, depending upon, and I agree with what Candy just said, a lot of what they're depending upon is really um, general ignorance and lack of understanding around the trans experience. So it's easy for them to sort of capitalize on, you know, the bogeyman that they've used in the past, you know, so sexual predators, a lot of that. Um, we're seeing that related to trans to using uh, bathrooms according to your gender identity. I will say this for the religious right, which is they stick to their playbook. They've sort of created this list of strategies and tactics. They keep applying them, you know, year after year, and indeed, in this case, decade after decade. They just sort of swap in a new topic. So, you know, again, it's around you know controlling your bodies. It's around making like, your own medical decisions. You know, these are all topics that they, you know, have been employing and trying to undercut when it comes to uh, a woman's right to choose. And now they're just buying those wholesale to uh, trans people's rights to make choice around their own gender identity, and particularly trans minors.
2: I think there's something to be said about, obviously, them constantly going towards people's emotions. What we saw over the past four years, at least with the rise of Trump and with the rise of the, the religious right, who is very much catering to Trump's ideals, is it doesn't matter about fact. It doesn't matter about truth. All that matters is how does it make you feel? And they've seen over the past several years that there is a visceral emotional reaction from people who are anti-LGBTQ about any time you bring up an LGBTQ issue. And so because they saw the success of that over the past administration, they realized that those folks did not go away their Facebook pages are still very much present. Their Twitter presence is still very much there. And if you give them a headline, if you give them a story that is in any way transphobic, at least to us is transphobic, but they don't register as that being the case, um, even though that's clearly wrong, but they, they know how to manipulate media and they know how to manipulate people's behaviors to go along with their idea that this is something you should feel very strongly about and the reason you should feel strongly about it is because society has told you to feel strongly about it over the course of your life. Because the same arguments were made about same-sex marriage. Ugh, it's going to impact your marriage. It's going to impact your life. And when you cater to someone's personal thoughts and beliefs, that's where they get you. And it's unfortunate that that's true.
3: Absolutely, that's true, Jorge. I, you know, I, I think about the uh, legislation that was just passed in Virginia that the whole idea of gay and trans panic as a reason for someone to use, to say that that's what, why they did what they did to harm someone has been overruled. That is no longer, they can no longer use that as a, um, a rationale for their behavior. So we're making some progress in terms of the courts and then there's steps backwards in terms of some of the you know, other states that are trying to pass legislation uh, in around trans rights. But in particular around the, the religious right, I think what really gets to me is that the use of fear, the use of somehow making people, trans people in particular, LGBT folks, but especially trans folks, not human. So we can treat them differently. And that just goes against uh, shared values in Judeo-Christian, uh, Belief systems. That's just totally not correct at all. And so I think that's a conflict. And I think that conflict also causes people to feel uncomfortable because they have that conflict personally, but they have that conflict in their institutions. They have the conflict also in in terms of political platforms. And so the bottom line is to make people afraid versus, well, let's see what there is about this sexuality, gender identity. Spectrum, and so they don't explore it. They just want to make people afraid of it.
2: And the tough thing is also like, how many people whose hands are involved in this? You have pastors who have anti-LGBTQ views. You have politicians who have anti-LGBTQ views. You have lobbyists who have these views. And so, even if that's the case, right? If you are appealing to the general American who has absolutely no interest in policy, absolutely no interest in what's happening on a political front, all you have to say is whatever transphobic language they say about trans people using bathrooms, trans people being in part of sports, like if you just cater to something in their viewpoint about something they've already developed a feeling on. like It's not like we're approaching folks right now who have no thoughts whatsoever about queer people. They already feel like either queer people deserve rights or they don't deserve rights. And so because there's all these power players that are talking to them and communicating with them on a regular basis, be it at church, be it on TV, be it on talk radio, be it on social media, they are already finding ways to to really have a say into how they're going to feel about this. Yes, but this is
3: still go back, going back to what John was saying. This is nothing new. This is just the same playbook. It's the same church, just a different pew. So, it's, mm. if you go further back, I mean, this is what they said about why people should not uh, marry interracially. I mean, you know, there was a whole lot they had to say about that, or why Black people uh, should not uh, use the same bathroom as white people. I mean, so you, know, why it was okay to have slaves. The society has always been vulnerable to these kinds of uh, rhetoric or, you know, beliefs that get passed on. I think it's, it's really incumbent on um, us who know what's really real, to break it down for the public um, so that there is less to fear and there is more understanding.
0: I, I think, Andy, makes a really good point, and it's easy to talk about each of these issues in isolation, but what we're really talking about here is kind of the fear of the other and fear of the change caused by the other. So. And, and that has a lot to do with obviously LGBTQ rights, but it has a lot to do with race. Um, and I think these issues are linked across the spectrum. If you look at the study that just came out of the insurrectionists um, last January at, cap, uh, at the Capitol, they were much more motivated by fear of losing their majority status as white people. I think that LGBTQ rights is really one of those changes that really frightens them, Um, and I think that's part of the reason why the um, folks in power are really trying to play on that, because it's a motivating factor for the support that they're seeking.
3: That's spot on, John.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned are the people in power. Well, before that, uh, uh, Reverend Holmes, I have to go back to your phrase that you said. Uh, What was it? Same church, different pew. I feel like that I was like, mind blown. I got it. I know exactly what you're saying. So I just thought that was such a great uh, comparison or phrase to use to to explain this to, to our listeners. But one of the things, speaking about that idea of people in power, Reverend Holmes, I was wondering, like, what what responsibility do you think that uh clergy have around this issue you know how should they be talking about this with their faith communities and then also one of the things that I was so interested in when I was actually reading your bio um, before this conversation is that you yourself went through a transformation on lgbtq issues throughout your career um can you tell us a little bit about that and then I mean is it possible? Are we holding out hope for other faith leaders to go through a transformation themselves?
3: I think we should be hopeful that people involved, that faith leaders involved. Many have already, and some are still evolving. And I think it's going to be an ongoing process. As it relates to myself, I didn't hatch as an activist. And so I didn't pop up and say, oh, this is something I think I want to do. And actually, I did not even know that I was a lesbian. You know, when I was growing up, I just knew that there was something different about me. And as time progressed on, I learned what that was. And I had the, what would be uh, common experiences uh, for LGBT folks, you know, around the church, you know, either being expelled or uh, being harmed and or, you know, hurt in some kind of way. And so I wasn't hot on the church. You know, I just wasn't feeling God. You know, I mean, there was some other... There was a being there, but, you know, taking care of business for me. But I was not feeling like I wanted to be involved with religion at all. But as time went on, I began to feel, you know, heal and feel better about all that and began to explore for myself what I wanted to have as my own spirituality. What was my foundation? What did I want? And so, you know, and all of this ties into my growth around the intersection between my sexuality and my spirituality. The more I did work around that, you know, I became more and more empowered. And what you can, there's very little you can do with an empowered person. Uh, You can't tell them what to do uh, without explaining the wherefores and the whys and so forth, because they are empowered. And so the more I began understanding what my sexuality was about, my spirituality was about, that God loved me, and that no one could take that away from me, and that that was, didn't have anything to do with institution. That was just because I am human, and all people are created, you know, how however you want to call the universe, God, higher power. We all are a part of humanity. And so once I got that in my head, and really got that in my heart, you couldn't take that away from me. And I think that is part of the message that I continue to communicate to others, whether they're in church or not in church. It's not about the religion necessarily. It's really about power and being empowered. And what happens is that when you are empowered, these structures in society have less sway with you as an individual. They may try, but they can't. put. They may push you down, but you pop back up. And so that's one of the encouraging points that I I try to to bring out, for especially for young people who are really struggling and trying to figure it out. And just don't think that religion is the the way or feel feel that religion is absolutely not the way because of the harm that has come from them.
1: One of the things you said is that you are hopeful that that people can change, that churches can change. Gosh, I mean, what what would that even look like, like right now? I feel like, you know, I changed. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I didn't even want to get married. Wow. Because someone told me I couldn't get married because I'd never seen it before. Then what happened was I became more empowered. Mm. And then I realized, you know, it didn't just happen. It, it happened that I saw injustice in California around Park Eight when people were trying to get married or had gotten married and then they took it back from them, the right to marry. And then we had these people in limbo who had gotten married, but then they took it away. And it was, I thought that was severely unfair. Now, I wasn't an educated uh, activist at that point, but I knew that there was something very, very wrong about that. And so that just sparked a fire in me to, to, to do what I could do. And even it, it was just a small thing. And that's what I did. I did a very small thing. I decided that I would come out at work. And how I did that is I, I asked my spouse, you know, would she mind if we put a picture up and participated in June, uh, the month of June, which was diversity month. And the LGBT employee group asked if we would, Put our pictures up so that people can see that we actually have families and so I did that. What I didn't know was that, that they would blow my our picture up to you know t- from a snapshot to a 14 by 17 <laughs> and put it and put it right smack in the middle of this whole photo display and so here you have these two black lesbians you know and then you have all you know a, a sea of other people who are mostly primarily white. But that sent the message and it, it was the thing that then led to the next thing. N- next thing I knew, somehow or another, the White House was calling me and asking if I would come and talk to President Obama. Somehow the you know, Congress was calling me and asking me if I would come testify before them. So one thing led to another, just because I was empowered and I, and I didn't want to just turn a blind eye to the injustice that I saw. And then the next thing I knew, they were talking about same-sex marriage. And it's like, I could get married? Wow. I think I do want to get married because I just said I didn't want to get married because I, I didn't want what didn't want me. Mm. And then I changed that around to say, I no matter what anyone else says, I have every right mm-hmm. to be married if I want to be because I am just like everybody else i'm not i'm not different i'm not the other even if others want to classify me that way.
1: That is such a beautiful story. And I mean, quite a a one thing to the next thing to happen to all of a sudden being in the Oval Office shaking President Obama's hand. (laughs) So that is quite a journey. Um, One of the things when you said that it sparked a fire for you, it made me think about, you know, just over the past couple of days, we saw there's been all of this energy around pushing back against Arkansas's anti-trans bill in particular. And there's been a ton of activism and people encouraging folks to reach out to their representatives. Then, of course, the governor uh, vetoed it because he knew that the legislature would override it, which uh, has happened. Um, But but I wonder if is this also a time for people to have that fire sparked for themselves, too? Is this a time where maybe somebody's watching and, you know, they have been part of a church or religious community their whole lives that has been saying these messages to them? And then they're all of a sudden like wait a second, I'm watching this happen with my own eyes and I disagree with this.
3: Absolutely. I, and it can happen and it is happening. Um, we might not be aware of it until, you know, because the news media you know, only captures certain things. But I believe that across the nation and, and I even across the world, that this kind of thing is happening in the hearts and minds of people um, as they are exposed to the injustice and as they are Better understand, they may not even understand all the rare force and the particularities around trans lives. And I go as far as to say, one doesn't need to understand all the particularities. What is important is that this humanity and shared values and that we all are a part of the human community and treating each other as we would like to be treated. Well, there's two things. How do we treat ourselves, which is is one thing? And then how do we want others to treat us? And then when you combine those two things, then you project that out. And that's very common in church and very common in in faith spaces, that whole idea of the rule of love. And uh, while it might seem simple, it is something that people of faith and people who are in faith spaces or people of good conscience uh, relate to. I think
0: there's already some evidence that we're seeing exactly that sort of phenomenon happening, particularly among evangelicals, conservative evangelicals. Millennial evangelicals are far more accepting of LGBTQ rights than elders are. The other issue that they de- sort of depart on is climate change, but which is a problem for the the power structure in the religious right if they're going to you know, feeding this fear of um, LGBTQ people, when in fact, the folks who are coming up through their pipeline, their youngest members are less likely to agree with them. And I think that also contributes to this bigger issue, which is that millennials are far less likely to have any religious affiliation at all. Um, there actually are more people who have no religious affiliation in this country than in fact than than there are conservative evangelicals. about a quarter of the population just has is unchurched mm. and that's been growing over time I mean in, in, and in part because the religious right has been you know, has been giving religion a bad name. Um, it's it's really been turning people off because they think it's so politicized, they just don't want anything to do with it. And it's sort of feeding this trend to the country becoming more secular.
2: I think there's also something to be said about anybody who's aware about the notion of dismantling the patriarchy. When you think about the church, and I'll speak specifically about the Catholic church, which is the church that I'm still a part of. When you think about the fact that female ordination is something that is being laughed at by members of the church hierarchy when you see that god in all texts is used is given he him his pronouns even though as i learned over the course of doing my podcast that god's pronoun is god and that we should refer to god as god because god themselves is either a third gender or non-binary which I consider I just find to be such a fascinating topic but it all comes to this idea of masculinity and people's fear of masculinity being challenged that's why you have them say oh do you want a trans person to be going into your bathroom and to you know look at Mm -hmm. your body do you want people to play with your kids with the stuff that they like it's all kind of going to this idea of somebody challenging your own personhood Mm. and your personhood tied to your sexuality and your own identity. But for the most part, it's usually masculinity. And it all kind of factors in together, especially when you bring in religion, because most of the clergy you hear saying these nasty things are men. Most of the people you hear saying that you're going to hell, eternal damnation and trans folks are going to hell, men. The Pope himself, Pope Francis, for all the wonderful things he has possibly said about queer people, has said that trans people are an abomination of man. So these are all things that men are saying for fear of what's going to happen to the patriarchy should things not go in their direction.
3: That is so spot on, Jorge. It really comes down to power and the loss of power.
1: I mean, on that idea of the the loss of power, I mean, the religious right is not only melting down over trans legislation, trans rights. It's also been over the Equality Act. John, I think that you actually had a story that that noted that the Federalist even said the Equality Act, quote, viciously attacks Christians. Funny, I didn't see that in the Equality Act anywhere. Um, What do do y'all make of that? Like, What are you hearing around the Equality Act and religion?
0: Well, I mean, the big issue around the Equality Act is that, you know, for conservatives, is the lack of a, uh, a loophole for um, folks who don't want to abide by it. So, what they're looking for is some kind of religious liberty or religious freedom exemption so that they don't have to abide by anti discrimination protections if they don't want to. Um, and that's really an outgrowth of the whole homophobic bakers and florists who have challenged, as businesses challenged um, their participation in same-sex weddings. You know, other federal non-discrimination protections don't have a loophole. You can't say, you know, I'm not going to serve somebody because my faith tells me that I shouldn't be serving someone who's Black. But they do want that. That's That's what they're looking for. And that's the attack that they're claiming is on Christians. It's actually on a certain segment of Christians who want, you know, don't want to recognize the rights of LGBTQ people. And so they're looking for an out. And they want the federal government to provide that out for them. Now, the Supreme Court may do that in any case, unfortunately, but that's what the battle is though, for the Equality Act.
2: It seems like nuance is lost on the religious right. Like they're either strict constitutionalists or strict Bible readers. And there's no leeway whatsoever to like, hey, Title IX would actually make it easier for us not to discriminate against LGBTQ folks. But some people say, that's not what it says here. That's your interpretation of it. Same thing with the Bible. You know, People constantly go back to Leviticus and then others will say, there's nothing in the Bible that says anything about LGBTQ identity. And then you'll have somebody say, well, nah, if you look here and there's no possibility whatsoever to reach somebody when they're so gung-ho about their idea about what a text that they had no control over and that we had no control over about what it actually says and how we're actually meant to interpret it, because for them, their interpretation is the only right way.
3: Right. The Equality Act, I mean, it's sad to say that we need something like that in order for there to be equality and equity. But the truth of the matter is, is it's needed, just like it was needed to have civil rights laws. It was needed, and without it, certain things would continue. So, in order for discrimination to stop or to prevent it from happening, or to have some kind of redress when it does happen, we need the Equality Act. Period. And in terms of the religious right, fighting it or not wanting it to be in place, going back to what John was saying about the whole idea of not wanting, you know, to be in, they don't want all of that LGBT stuff imposed upon them. But it's okay for them to impose their religious belief on others. And and that's not the way it works. I mean, that's just not the way it it should work, I should say. And if preachers and pastors and bishops and clergy people in general, faith leaders, if their uh, sacred text is the Bible there are stories after stories in the Bible where God lifts up the other as the person that should not be minimized. <laughs> it's the Bible's replete with them, I mean, just over and over again. So it's clear to me, and, and, and also the poor and, and the, the widow and, you know, the orphan. So wherever the, the individuals are s- situated in society, if they, are, if they are considered the other because they're not a part of the power structure, they should not be penalized because they're not a part of it. In actuality, they should be lifted up. And so I go back to that scripture saying, you, you know, if you harm the least of them, it's like harming me. And so that's really, you know, the, the spirituality foundation that faith leaders um,
2: and faith institutions should be rallying around. I tweeted this the other day. I said, does anybody have a Bible with footnotes or asterisks, especially where it's like, love thy neighbor as you love yourself, because mine doesn't. Or like when we sing all are welcome in this place, does anybody have an asterisk? Mine doesn't. So if if we're really supposed to listen to somebody who's fighting from a religious point of view and we come back and we counter, okay. We also, as queer people, some of us of faith, we've listened to these same stories, we've listened to these same anecdotes, we've listened to these same hymns, and if both of us are hearing All Are Welcome, why is it now that that doesn't come true? Why is it now that because I'm asking to be seen as an individual like you, that we are not meant to listen to what was told to us, which is we are all each created in the image and likeness of God. That means all of us on this call, we're creating the image and likeness of God, if that is what we believe. But why all of a sudden is that not people's belief when when it comes to a political idea of full equality under the law?
0: Well, unfortunately for a lot of people, you know, religion is like a menu where they take one from column A and one from column B, and, you know, this parable, but not that parable, um, to build the to build the religion that is most comfortable for their worldview. And, you know, I well remember a priest saying that the whole point of the Bible was to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Um, and if you're in the comfortable category, that's not a good place to be.
2: And that's true. And I'll be one of the first to admit that I'm definitely one of those cafeteria Catholics. I pick what I like. I think what works for me works for me. Uh, because I see spirituality very much like I see sexuality. It's a personal thing. I do not need somebody to tell me how to be queer. I do not need somebody to tell me how to be Catholic. And so I completely understand that point of view of people will take what they will. People will leave what they don't want. And it's, it's difficult to try to have a conversation with others who have made those respective decisions for themselves um, because you don't know what they've kept and you don't know what they've left behind the same way they don't know what I've kept or what I've left behind. And so that makes the conversation that much more difficult because there's definitely no even playing field.
0: I, I, th- I think that's, I think that's absolutely correct. I think the, the main issue is if you sort of follow the, you know, follow the idea that you shouldn't harden your heart when you're doing that. I mean, I, and I think that's really the, the problem that a lot of the religious right comes with, which is their hearts are already hardened. And that mm. really makes it, that really makes it difficult to have the kind of open conversations that you want
3: And that makes it even more the reason and and necessarily uh, the need, I should say, for uh, laws like the Equality Act. Um, Because some people are not going to be swayed. Um, One way, you know, they're just not going to bend or yield. Um, And so we need the laws to help protect the LGBTQ community.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. I was just thinking about um, everything that Y'all have been saying, I mean, pretty much this entire time. And I was thinking about how, for me, I come from a a multi-faith background where my mom's family is Catholic, my dad's family is Jewish. And I felt really, uh, I think, John, kind of what you said about, you know, a lot of millennials don't belong to any church um, or institution right now. And I have to say that I felt for so long, so much like I, I didn't belong in either of those places. And then it wasn't until I actually found more LGBTQ Jewish people that I that it made me feel even stronger in my Jewish identity and even stronger in my queer identity. So it's it's you know, it can really be uh kind of feeling left out then ended up affirming me when I was able to finally find that that right community for me and and affirm me in, you know all of my different identities um in those ways so so what y'all were saying was just making me think about all of that um and and so as we start to wind down um we've talked about uh, how we've seen the religious right focus on anti-trans bills um also uh on the equality act um and lgbtq nation also recently reported that montana's legislature um passed a religious freedom restoration act that that it, will likely be signed by the governor. Um, so where where do you all see this going next? What should we be keeping an eye on when it comes to the religious right and, uh, and LGBTQ issues? It's tough
2: because I feel like a lot of my energy right now is reaching out to queer folks who are navigating their faith identity and whether or not they want to be a part of a church, whether or not they're suffering trauma because of rhetoric that's been used at the church, because of other instances of spiritual violence, um, because I think that phrase, somebody mentioned it to me a few years ago, and it's just stuck with me, this idea that the church can be a violent place, depending on the church that you're affiliated with or the location in which you went to that church. Um, so I think as, as much as I want to have these hard conversations with the religious right and try to win them over and try to convince them, I feel called to, and maybe this is part of my ministry, who knows, but to talk to other people who are trying to figure out Am I still part of the faith community? If I'm not a part of a faith community, what is the best way to move about as my own fully realized queer self? And is there a way for those of us who do want to remain in the faith, those of us who do want to remain attached to a particular church, is there an opportunity for reformation from within? Is it on us, if we choose so, to be the activist from within these institutions to keep the people who are on the verge of becoming religious right from actually getting there, Um, whether that's talking to pastors, lay people, other ministers that are part of the church. Um, So I personally feel called to be one of those activists within the church. I speak the language of the church because I've been Catholic 33 years of my life. Um, I've understood Catholicism a little bit more than my queerness because I knew I was Catholic from day one, queer not so much. And so if those of us who are still willing to be a part of the faith are equipped to have these conversations with members of the religious community, then I think that's where a lot of work can also be done.
0: I think that is I think that is a, a wonderful way to go about this and to think about this, which is, you know, there's certainly the macro level with what's happening, you know, politically, and those battles will go on for years still, unfortunately, but really what gets lost and what Jorge is talking about are the struggles that individuals have and the toll that the rhetoric has taken on them and not just the rhetoric, but, you know, what but, but more than that, that what has taken on them over the course of their lifetimes while they're sort of struggling with a spiritual journey. And to me sort of the saddest thing about all of this is the fact that whether or not you choose to believe is, you know, a deeply, deeply personal decision. But the saddest part is that many people feel they can't believe because of what they're being told. Anything we can do to mitigate that, I think that's, that's really, to use a note that's appropriate in this conversation, that's the Lord's work.
3: I I agree with both John and Jorge, and um, we feel the same. Um, I also feel that um, I think there's a role for faith leaders uh, to become more involved if, if they are able to, alongside their church work, to become more involved with organizations that have their their finger on the pulse of what's going on uh, so, so that we are walking together on the journey of justice versus only walking together when a hot issue comes up. And so I think building relationship between organizations and the faith community is vital, whether that's the black church, whether that's the Catholic Church, or whether that's evangelicals, whether that's the Baptists, but there's plenty good room for relationship building um, with clergy, whether they wherever they are on their evolutionary track, or if they are not on the if they're not evolving at all, for institutions to find ways to build relationships with faith spaces and faith leaders so that there's soil for growth, so that when we hit these hot spots where something is being challenged in the courts or, you know, you need a faith leader to, to be able to speak faith language, uh, you're not having, the institution is not having to be transactional by, you know, renting a clergy call, so to speak, but really can say, you know, well, you know, Bishop so-and-so or Reverend so-and-so, or, you know, this young woman over here, um, we believe that this person could really help us and let's pull them in and and bring them up to snuff with what's going on now in the courts. And, uh, but they can only do that if they know who, who those clergy or faith people are. Uh, so I think that's that's one area that I think a lot of work is continue. It has been happening, but I think after same-sex marriage came and sort of, um, it came and it, it stayed, I think a tension around keeping those relationships, because it took a lot of relationship building for that to happen with faith leaders and faith community and the LGBTQ institutions. Uh, I think we should not ever let that go, And we should build upon it. So that no matter what comes, because it will, the, the storms will continue to come, we could weather those storms together.
1: Well, I think that is the perfect note to end this conversation on. I can't thank the three of you enough for such an informative and wide-ranging conversation. Um, where can our listeners find each of you?
2: So you can follow me on social media at Jorge O, X-O-R-J-E-O. You can visit my website, heyjorge.com. And my new podcast, Queer I Am Lord, which is an interview-based conversation with LGBTQ Catholics. You can listen to that wherever you stream your podcasts or on my website. I'm on Facebook. So social media
3: is probably the best way to reach out to, uh, to Candy Holmes. Is so I don't have the Reverend handle. So you can find me on Facebook.
0: And I contribute about three stories a week to LGBTQNation.com. Um, but I hope you're reading that already anyway.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you all so much. Each week after we talk about the news, I like to leave you with a story that's bringing me joy. I love it when LGBTQ people who aren't household names, but should be, get their due. You might not know the name Sally Gerhardt, but that is going to change thanks to a new documentary currently in production called Sally. Gerhardt was an important part of the LGBTQ and feminist movements in the 1970s and 80s, and the film will highlight the 89 year old's accomplishments. There are those people apparently who question the health and the beauty and the naturalness and the strength of same sex relationships. And all I've got to say is I wish they were here today. As you heard there, she sounds like a badass. Gerhardt fought alongside Harvey Milk against homophobic laws and created one of the first women's and gender studies programs in the country at San Francisco State University. The filmmaker Deborah Craig told LGBTQ Nation that when she started the project, she called Sally the lesbian Harvey Milk. But quote, the more we look, the more of a complex, nuanced, interesting, charismatic, multifaceted, sometimes confusing and perplexing and charming character she turns out to be. I personally can't wait to watch. Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Subscribe, rate and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q-Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Katz, John Halbach, Bill Browning, and Melissa Demonts.
2: Forever Dog.